It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before, before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the, purpose, the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you, you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but we are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to, uh, excuse me, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I have become your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word that brings life. Lord, I thank you that you're here with us right now. And I ask, Lord, that your spirit would move among us. Teach us through your word. Lord, use me as an instrument to proclaim the truth. God, make us more faithful and committed followers of your Son. In Christ's name, amen. So in the year 2000, uh, the movie Remember the Titans came out. And it's a story, yeah, it's a great one. Uh, it's a story of a Virginia high school uh, football team during desegregation. Uh, it's the only school in that area that allowed blacks and whites to play on the same team together. Um, and the movie shows the struggle that these coaches and players and families went through uh, during that time. They were overcoming racial prejudice and hatred. Uh, and at the beginning of the movie, they, they, they all go to camp, a football camp together. And the players uh, come together at this camp, and when they're away from the town, it seems like everything is good. They're able to come together and play and put aside their differences. But when they come back from camp, they enter back into this world uh, that is full of hatred. They enter back into the life that they left behind and find that it's much more difficult to remain unified uh, than it was at camp. It's much more difficult uh, to stay united as a team and they, and they start to see that unity takes work. It's a struggle. And I'm reminded of this struggle as we look at, through this passage today, that unity for the body of Christ is going to take work. It's, it's difficult to do. It's not easy. 
the struggle to remain united despite the preferences and desires of the flesh and the world are incredibly difficult. In Acts chapter 18, we're first introduced to this church in, in, uh, Corinth, in Corinth, the, the Corinthian church. Paul lived and labored in Corinth for a year and a half. As the church grew and became more established, uh, while Paul was away, he, he begins to get these notifications, I guess, these, he, these uh, reports of issues going on in the, in the church there. And so he writes this letter to address those issues. And the book of uh, Corinthians is, is kind of written in little essays uh, where he addresses a problem and then responds with the gospel. And so we've been looking at the, the issue of unity within the church. Paul uh, describes the issue. Uh, he, he wants to show how they don't really live out what they say that they believe. And so he wants these people to live their life with the lens of the gospel and everything they do. It's why the series is called Gospel Saturation, because the way that Paul is addressing these issues and, and talking about them with uh, these people is, this, this is all of life. It's not just Sunday morning. It's not just when you're with your church friends. But the gospel is all of life. It saturates and penetrates every part of who you are. And he wants them to see that. So this first section on unity that we've been looking at, we, we've seen over the past few weeks, Paul described the describe the problem and, and responds with the gospel. The church in Corinth had divided themselves into groups, into different factions. Um, ultimately, these groups were based on preferences. Some people preferred one leader over another leader. And this might seem kind of ridiculous that, that somebody choosing another leader over another, another leader would divide the church, but we see this all the time. We say things like, I don't really like his style of preaching, or, or we leave the church that we've been going to because we don't like the way the music pastor leads the, the, the worship, or the decisions that one pastor makes. We see this all the time. So many of us uh, in this room have, have left situations like that uh, where we, we have felt hurt by the church, and, and sometimes it's because of our preferences that we feel hurt. That's what's happening here. The people uh, talk about their preferences as if the church leaders are failing to follow Christ because uh, they don't live up to what they believe they should be living up to. Paul responds with the gospel by revealing the wisdom of God in the gospel. It is God who has done the work to save people. He's created and sustained the church and he sanctifies his people. The leaders and the teachers within the church are only servants of the God who does all the work. So in chapter 4, chapter that we're looking at today, Paul is closing out his, his rebuke on unity within the church. I want to start, uh, if you will, look at verse 14. We see in verse 14 through 17, it says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ... You do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Paul addresses this church as a father. And I, and I, I want to start here because I think it's important for us to see the heart of Paul and what he's saying. 
He's pleading with them as a father. He's not, he says, I, I write these things not to make you ashamed. He's been saying very hard things to these, to these Christians that, that you are acting like unbelievers in the way that you treat and love each other. But he doesn't say this to shame them. I think in our culture, we have a tendency that any, any kind of uh, negative criticism that we receive, we should push back on as offensive. But he, he's not saying this to make them ashamed, but he's saying this, he says to admonish them or to warn them of, of what could happen. We see his heart that he, he wants these people to follow his example. He says, be imitators of me. And, and, and this statement isn't a pride statement. He's not saying, I got it all figured out. Follow me. But he's saying, I am following Christ, so follow me. Do what I do, because I, I am trying to imitate God. I'm trying to imitate Christ. In the same way that a child wants to mimic their parent, uh, is, is the same way that Paul is calling these people to imitate him. He wants them to follow in his steps. And so we see that, like a father, he wants his spiritual children to imitate him. Like the Corinthians, we also struggle to put lay aside our preferences and to love others well. Like these Corinthians, we try to live a self-reliant faith that puts our own desires and our own wants above others. And we need the gospel to, to correct this. I want us to see through this passage how we can lay aside our fears and our pride and live in unity as brothers and sisters of Christ. As we begin, I want to ask this question for each of us uh, to consider. How have I demonstrated my love for God's people above my own desires? How have you individually laid aside your own desires, your own wants, for the sake of God's people? How does this passage that we're looking at today give us the freedom to do that? I want to show you three truths in this passage that help us live a more unified life as believers. The first truth is that we have freedom from judgment. We, there's a freedom that we have from judgment. If you look in verse 1, it says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. Paul starts off by commanding the people on how they should view the leadership. This is, this is the issue, the, the main issue that he's addressing in, in the Corinthian church is that they, they have said, I prefer Paul or I prefer Apollos. I prefer Peter. And, and, and some are saying, well, I, forget all of them. I follow Jesus. And, and there, there's this division he says that they should stop seeing, seeing one leader as greater than another and see them all as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. Paul makes this point first because he wants the people to know that Jesus is the master. Jesus is in control, not the church. These, these leaders, these elders, these apostles are serving Christ. They, they don't uh, they're not given over to every will and desire of the church, but they, they're given over to the will and desire of Christ. He wants them to see uh, that they are servants of God, not the church. And, and I say that kind of cautiously because ultimately leaders in the church are serving the church, but they're doing that to serve the Lord. He says that 
We should see them as stewards of the mysteries of God. The, the, these mysteries of the God, uh, excuse me, these mysteries of God are, uh, Paul refers to many times in scripture, it's the gospel. It is the message of the gospel, this, this mystery that Christ, beca- that God became a man. Christ came and lived this perfect life and died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. It was unheard of that this king, that God would come and lay his life down it's a mystery how all of that works. And, and so he, he, he is charged with this mystery to proclaim this truth of the gospel. As stewards of the gospel, in verse 2, it says, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. As stewards of the gospel, leaders and teachers are to be found trustworthy. It is required of them. So crossing church is we continue to grow, and as we continue to call leaders, we, we saw last week uh, how, how we want to be growing and, and calling uh, deacons, which is a part of leadership within the church. As we continue to grow in leadership and examine them, we must see that these things are true. They must be true of our eldership team as, as a team and as individuals, that they would be trustworthy stewards of the gospel. And we must rightly judge our leadership as, as the body of Christ, we are called to hold them accountable. As we move on to verse 3, speaking of judgment, Paul says, But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Paul is not stating that he is above judgment. He's not saying that I, I am above all of this, and you cannot call me to account. What he is saying is that judgment is, is not something that he fears. He does not uh, even judge himself because he knows that he can't be objective. He, he can look at his own life and say, well, I think I'm doing okay. We, we do that. We're very tempted to do that. He knows this, and he knows that the only one who can look on him and judge him is the Lord. He does not even judge himself, but is the Lord who judges him. This is a far cry uh, from the don't judge me culture that we live in today. Throughout the New Testament, Paul was frequently judged, but he didn't live in fear of, of that judgment. How is that possible? We, we know scripture tells us that all of us have sinned and fallen short. And so if we are to be judged rightly, we're all condemned. How does Paul live without fear of judgment? Well, it tells us in verse 4, For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul has a clear conscience. He stands before the Lord with a clear conscience. He has been forgiven and washed clean by the blood of Christ. And when he stands before the Lord, he sees him, the Lord sees Paul, uh, he, he throws his sin aside and says, it's forgiven. My son is paid for this. He has a clear conscience because he knows that he has been faithful. There is a clear distinction between what Paul is saying and what our world wants to tell us about our conscience. Paul has a clear conscience, but that doesn't mean that he silenced his conscience. What do I mean by that? I believe, 
I believe that I have a, have a very sensitive conscience. When I sin, I know that I must confess. If I don't, I feel this burden. Like, I, like I can't rest. You can ask my wife. Like, I, I feel guilty, and, and I know that I must confess my sin. But before I was a Christian, I, I also had a sensitive conscience. And when I did things wrong, I was very aware of the things that I had done. I knew that they were wrong. But instead of confession, the way I dealt with it was to ignore it. And most frequently, the way that I did that was by going to sleep. I thought, if I'll just go to sleep, I can wake up and I won't rem- it, won't, it won't matter. It's gone. It's in the past. It's whatever. And so I would go to sleep and wake up in the morning and my guilt would be gone for a season. My guilt would not be there. I would, I would just sleep it off. I was still guilty, but I, ha- I had ignored and quieted my conscience and the thoughts that did condemn me. I believe that this is why Jonah was able to sleep through the storm, was that he was running from a guilty conscience and he, and he went under the boat and slept. And while, while the chaos of the world is going on around him, he is sound asleep because the, the guilt that condemns him uh, is, is too much to deal with. Paul is not saying that his conscience is clear because he has quieted his conscience. And he just can't think of anything that he's guilty of. He has a clear conscience because he has been faithful. He has obediently followed Christ and been faithful and trustworthy as an apostle. But this is not why he is justified. This is not why he is forgiven before the Lord. If, if this were the case, Paul would be teaching a works-based salvation, a works-based righteousness. Titus 3.5 says, he, he, God, saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the only righteous judge. Paul isn't guiltless because he is sinless. He is guiltless because of the work of Jesus Christ in his life. Jesus is the judge. He is the fulfillment of the law, Matthew 5 tells us, and he is the end of the law, Romans 10. He judges Paul's faithfulness in hardship and in plenty. When when things are going well for Paul, when things are going poorly, the way Paul responds, that is what he is judged for. Verse 5 says, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purpose of the heart. The thing, uh, then each one will receive his commendation from God. Paul ends this section uh, in verse 5 with a command. He's addressing the sinful desire that we have to criticize leadership within the church. Do not criticize a person who is teaching, uh, who, whose teaching and life are in harmony with Scripture. When Christ returns, things unknown will be known, and the Lord alone will give praise. We must seek the praise of God and not man. Paul is intentional in this passage to use the word praise and not rebuke. When the Lord comes, there will be judgment for all people. For those who have repented and turned to Christ, there will be judgment, 
and hell for sin. But for those who have trusted and repented in Christ, the judgment will be according to our faithfulness. There is unbelievable, unbelievable freedom in this truth. Our sin does not condemn us. Because of Jesus, the Father looks on us and does not see our sin, but sees Christ's righteousness. This frees us from feeling this need to earn our salvation. This frees us to pursue obedience and good works, not to earn salvation, but to earn a a reward, and not to earn a reward because we deserve it, but because the works that we have done have glorified God, and he wants to give praise. It frees us to be unified as a body of believers despite our preferences, despite our background, race, financial situation, and education. This freedom from judgment gives us this freedom to put aside all of these things and live together as one. So will we faithfully lay aside our own desires to bring God glory and to seek praise for God? In Christ, there is freedom from judgment. So we need to live in unity with our brothers and sisters. We have a freedom from judgment, but we also have a freedom from pride. You look at verse 6. Paul is uh, saying, I have applied all of these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. He shifts, uh, from a, he shifts from speaking of the problem of, of disunity to applying this to our lives. In the last four chapters, he's been dealing with this issue of unity, and here he's applying these things to himself and Apollos. And what does he mean by these things? He's referring to these illustrations that he's already given in chapter 3 and 4. In chapter 3, he, he says that they are gardeners. In chapter 3, verse 6 and 8, 6 through 8. Yet among the mature, we do not impart wisdom, although it is not wisdom of this age. Oh, excuse me, I'm sorry, that was chapter 2. I apologize. Uh, chapter 3, verse 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Further on, he, he compares them to builders. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid the foundation and someone else built upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. And then in chapter 4, he he compares them to stewards of the mysteries of God. He uses these illustrations to show how all leaders are working together for the same purpose, but many have different roles. He says that he's applied these things that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Paul is humbly applying these things to himself to show how everyone and everything that we have possessed is from the Lord. And we should strive to learn from all of our leaders in this way. The way that Paul is applying these things to his own life, he, he is trying to teach them through his own life. The temptation that we face in church today is to be overly critical. We don't like to think, uh, if we don't like the way that someone has presented the information or has laid out uh, their points, we, we notice immediately things that they could have done differently. And the truth is that there is no perfect way to deliver a sermon 
or counsel or make you feel loved and important. No one will do that perfectly. Even as I'm up here right now preaching, I am overwhelmingly aware of my shortcomings and aware of how I could have done this differently, points I could have made that I'm not making. There's no perfect way to do this. Our elders are sinful and limited men. They are not God. If we see sin in our leaders, we should lovingly correct this, but otherwise we should strive more to learn from what they have to communicate to us than focus on their shortcomings. Focus on how we may learn and not if they applied the passage perfectly or they told a good story, uh, mentioned other, other points well, or, or had all of the things from systematic theology laid out just so. What, what does the Lord have for you to learn? In verse 7, it says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Paul knows the hearts of these people. And he knows the pride that is causing them to elevate their leaderships and to divide. Some, of you may, uh, some may have seen themselves uh, as more spiritually mature and wise. And so they didn't need to humbly submit. But in verse 7, Paul works systematically to humble the people. The way, the way he words these phrases is, is, is very ironic. They're, these questions are not to be answered. They're rhetorical. He says, For who sees anything different in you? No one sees anything different in you. What do you have that you did not receive? Nothing. If then you have received it, Why do you boast as if you have not received it? Why do you act like you have not been given everything? Don't you dare say that you have all of this on your own. You work to do this for yourself. And focusing even more on pride, he moves into verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. Paul is saying, You have everything that you need. This church thought they were well off. They had done everything well. They had done everything right. They had become self-reliant on themselves. And they had been so influenced by the culture and the teaching of the day that said, build up your own kingdom and and not the kingdom of God. Paul makes these ironic statements at the end of 8 to say, these are not true. Already you have all you want. You have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. But then he makes this statement at the end. And would that you did reign, so that we might reign and share with you. Okay? He, he is saying, I wish this were all true of you. I wish that you had figured this out perfectly, because if that were true, Christ has returned, and we would be ruling with you. I wish this were the case. What does this self-reliance and pride look like for us? What does this look like in our own lives? Well, maybe, maybe you want to be in control of your life, and so you refuse to open up with your, with your community, within your MCs or DNAs, or even refuse to uh, be a part of those things. Maybe you're so preoccupied with your own comfort that you view the body of Christ as an inconvenience, that, that you want to come and, and, and take, uh, but to serve is, is incredibly inconvenient. 
Maybe you just want to lay low and let others do the work while you comfortably watch and say, I'm a part of that. Maybe you're so focused on the needs and wants of your own life and family that you've never looked up to see the hurts and suffering of those around you. Maybe you've been in church so long that you've grown cynical and can't imagine a place where believers truly love each other in the way that this passage is calling us to. Or maybe you've just never truly heard and believed the gospel. And today is the day of your salvation. All of these things are areas where pride has crept into our life and told us that we're right. That we can ignore, ignore our, our believers, uh, our brothers and sisters. We can, we can ignore that and put ourselves up. And, and we justify that for ourselves. We say that this is, this is good. I deserve this. Uh, my life is crazy right now. We can do these things uh, later. But that's pride. Are we living in self-reliance? Are we more focused on building our own kingdom that we have neglected the kingdom of God? The pride that comes from our self-reliant tendencies pushes people away. It fractures the body of God whose main purpose is to build the kingdom. The main purpose of the church is to build up the kingdom of God here on earth. We have to lay aside our pride if we're to be effective kingdom builders. We have to see this as more important. This building up and loving people. In order to be unified, we must embrace our freedom from judgment and our freedom from pride and see that we have freedom to be humble. Freedom to approach each other with humility. In verse 9, is for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we become a spectacle to the world and angels and men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. He, Paul continues his ironic statements here uh, to help the Corinthians see their pride. Pride was the crowning jewel of this culture. Humility was seen as weakness. Self-reliance was praiseworthy. If you could, if you could survive on your own, this is good. But, but humbleness and, and self-forgetfulness uh, was looked down upon. In verse 11 through 13, it says, To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our hands, with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. This is what it looks like to apply the gospel to all of our lives. It is so different from everything that the world tells us we should be doing. It is not this, this kind of living is not passively laying down and letting the world take advantage of you. It is actively choosing to be like Christ, to love. The culture says that we should hold a grudge, get even, defend yourself. But what do we see in Christ? He was pierced for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. This is Isaiah 57, speaking of Christ to come and and how he would be. He laid down his life for the unity of the church so that we could be one even as he and the Father are one. He laid his life down. And so this isn't a small thing. The unity of the church is vital to the effectiveness of the church. Do we love each other? Do we see each other as brothers and sisters, or or are we just people that we do this thing with called the Crossing Church? It's only through humility and self-forgetfulness that we will truly live in unity. Tim Keller has a book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, and he says this, describing humility. The essence of gospel humility is not thinking of myself, not thinking more of myself, or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. We have a tendency to to view humility as this, this thing where we put ourselves down. You get a compliment. Well, it wasn't that good. It's not thinking of thinking more of yourself. It's not thinking less of yourself, putting yourself down. It's just thinking about yourself less often and thinking of others more. Forgetting yourself and lifting others up. Has becoming a self-sufficient people caused us to lose our love for Christ and for each other? There's no room for this in the body of Christ. There's no room for disunity. Disunity is, is the beginnings of, of fracturing and breaking the church. If we can't be unified as a body of, of Christ, what do we have in common? Practically, what does this look like? Well, it looks like pursuing membership. If you've been coming and, and, you, and you're, you're bought into what the Crossing Church is about, Pursue membership. Pursue relationships and missional communities and in DNA. Pursue a church and a people. And if it's not here, go somewhere else. Go and, and find a, a church that is preaching the good news, that is faithful to the scriptures, and, and love those people. But don't sit passively and just take I think in a lot of ways we do this well. In a lot of ways we put aside our preferences for the sake of loving each other. As the Crossing Church, I think we do this. We, we, we have our, our opinions about the structure of, of Sunday morning worship and, and our opinions of the music that we do. We do all these things, but we put that aside because we want to love each other well. We do this well. But there's also lots of areas where we could grow. I don't want to give away the ending of the series, but in chapter 15, we see the reason we have for unity. Paul, Paul is summing up all the different sin issues that he's been addressing and saying that we can, we can have this unity in Christ 
because of the resurrection of Christ. When we think about the gospel, we think about gospel unity, it seems crazy. It seems insane that a group of people would come together from different backgrounds and and upbringings, economic situations, and come together and be a part of this, this body of Christ. How does that work? Apart from Christ, it doesn't. It can't work. Eventually, there'll be a, a thing that, that we disagree on that will split us and we'll go our separate ways. But in Christ, there's unity. In Christ, there is love and there is the ability to forgive. There's the ability to put down our own desires and, and serve and love our people. It is the resurrection of Christ that is our hope. It is the resurrection that makes our salvation secure. And because of the resurrection, we will sit in heaven as a united people and partake of a meal together. All the saints together will eat of this meal. And the Lord's Supper is a celebration of the resurrection. Yes, we look to it to remember the death of Christ the body broken and the blood spilt, but it also is pointing forward towards a meal that we are going to take together. In the resurrection, when we, we are all together with Christ in heaven, we will partake of this meal and worship the Lord together. So to live this unified life, we must live with the freedom of judgment, the freedom from pride, and this freedom towards humility. Church, I pray and I hope that this is true of us. I hope and I pray that as we leave and discuss and and live this out, that we will grow closer, that we will see our shortcomings, that we will see where we fall short of loving people within our missional communities well, loving people on Sunday mornings well, loving this city well, I want us to be known as this church that those people just, they just love each other. That's weird. I want that. That that is the way that this world will know that we are his, is by the way we love each other. So let's pray. Father, your word is good and true. You've called us to work hard at being unified so that your world would know who we belong to. Help us. Lord, as we respond through song and through communion, Father, I pray that you would pierce our hearts. Show us how to respond appropriately, Lord, to to live in unity, free from the fear of judgment, putting aside our pride, God, and living humbly together. In Christ's name, amen.